Dr. Koontz, does your family store food for Tiawaki? We store food for a relatively limited time period. We are not collecting food in hopes of surviving a nuclear disaster. I suppose I should say it that way. And there's a difference here between being provident or giving yourself resources to work with, let's say. And a lot of prepper culture, which I find to be a consumer habit that I don't, <laughs> that I just uh, don't have enough spare change to in indulge in. Consumer survivalism is a real thing. Oh yeah. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are fairs, there are conferences, there are lots of things and there's a lot that you can buy ready-made. We're not, we're not there. We probably have more canned goods and stuff than uh, most people outside the state of Utah. I, I don't intend to boast at all. The Proverbs do say he stirs up and does not know who will receive and that it is taken and given to the one whom God desires to give it to. So I'm planning to basically uh, scavenge for most of those types of things that others have stored up uh, in the event that, that we need them. Uh, your talk about having a short-term supply, however, uh, that makes a lot of sense, right? So can I ask a little more deeply or narrowly? Like, how are you going about that? Is it rice and beans, like Gary says, or what? Yeah, yeah. Things that are going to be, you know, durable and will be pretty helpful. And there are lists of a lot of things like this, even from produced by the, you know, FEMA, um, for example. But uh, there are lists like this all over the internet. Uh, what's going to be nutritionally helpful? Do you like to eat it? Um, so would you actually eat it? What's going to be a high source of protein? So things like canned tuna are really good for this, for this sort of thing. Sorry and just buying those, buying those over time alongside other groceries. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, yeah. And then uh, you got a time frame. You are kind of, we don't have a go bag. We got a stay bag. That's the concept at least. And then our time frame is about two weeks is what we want to do. And then after that, we're going to come out and try to help find out what happens. And maybe we get killed. Who knows? But we will have, you know, endured that first starvation round. Yeah, this goes back to what we were talking about last week, which is the idea that we don't, and in the end of the world, as we know it, for me, the really operative phrase there is as we know it. Mm -hmm. And what I know is functional supply chains, for example. So I'm not storing in view of a nuclear disaster because it's not 1958. I'm storing up a little bit in order to get through shortages that I anticipate. So I guess the thing that, <laughs> the thing that I see coming a little faster and, and a little more uh, surely than many other things would be severe economic difficulty. And in that regard, you have to combine rice and beans and tuna with gardening. If you're doing that, and, and also, you know, optimally, and I know that you do this, having animals, they're going to be able to supply you with, you know, eggs and even milk if you can. And that kind of thing in combination is, is not there to see to your every need. It's basically to get you through times of scarcity. And so what I'm doing is actually prior to roughly the 1950s is completely normal. Even in cities, people had gardens because they just didn't have the same mindset that we do that when I want things, they will be available. And we're not right, just talking about right. consumer goods, you know, sitting somewhere on a container, like, and it should be in Long Beach, California, but it's not yet. I'm talking about basic nutritional things. And people took the attitude that you needed to provide at least some of that for yourself. And then some of that you could buy. And that seems much more reasonable and likely in any situation of to us, but not to history, unprecedented scarcity, than the idea that everything's going to fall apart. And I'm going to eat rice and beans for two months, and then I'm going to come out and there's going to be like a, you know, a, a nuclear winter or something mm. or, you know, whatever. If you look at, if you look at, Aguirre doesn't talk about this as much as I'd like him to, but you just look at history. Most people, certainly in the United States, are providing for themselves nutritionally on a daily basis to some degree. That's less in a city than it is in the country, but they're doing it in the city too. You know, they have vegetable gardens in Brooklyn. So I'm just trying to do something that's a little more historically normal than the way that 
I grew up, which is the way almost everybody grew up, which is you get everything from the grocery store. Yeah. You're kind of expecting winter in a sense, yeah. right? Yeah. It just yeah. isn't necessarily going to be during winter, although it could be, and then it'll be dark right. and stuff. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Thank you, Anthony Fauci. Okay. Hey, I want to go off on that, but let's, let's shift to then a question that came up in the discord. This will be weeks mm-hmm. back for those of you who are in the brief history power conversation there on us, the chill, which is the mad Christian discord. This question had to do with something you said about two weeks back in episodes regarding – it was in a conversation about how screens drain your willpower and, mm-hmm. and your soul and your juju and all that and create yeah. a false perception of reality that you – it's unavoidable. Like if you're watching, you're going to have a skewed view of the world. And then you yeah. made a comment yeah. that books could do the same thing. And yeah. someone said, What? Basically, I, <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't understand. And yeah. uh, I, I thought in the, in the comments, so I could type this out, but I'm pretty sure this will make good fodder uh, to talk about because I think it is yeah. worth my great struggles. I watched my avid reader children imbibe and just swallow so many juvenile fiction books that are written about all these various mythologies reworked and all this stuff is is – I know those authors aren't Christians and the world that they're inhabiting over and over and over again is not real. It's just not yeah. real. Yeah. And on what level? I don't know. That's what I got to help try to figure out as I raise them. Right. But, but like yeah. uh, for, for an adult to not realize how much you're impacted by the disreality, even of historic, like not fiction books that you're living in an alternate universe. Yeah. Okay. So, and this has occurred to me that, that your fiction reading habits and mine at least over our lifetimes have been vastly different. Amen. And I think that that affects. So if my diet has, as it still is when I read fiction, what would probably be called realist, that kind of slides into life much more easily than things where, where, where some other world is built or it's mythopoeic or something like that. But even apart from content, there's also the form and something to note is that prior to a certain time in the Christian church, no one is writing anything that is, is meant, even if it's long is meant to be consumed all at once. And so (laughs) I'm actually very happy with the way that a lot of people listen to this podcast, which is they're often about two weeks behind and uh, they listen more than once. Because then I know that I'm putting out something worthwhile. Because if you look at the form of a lot of Christian literature, also philosophical literature, of all kinds, it's actually, let's say, upbuilding or helpful to people. So in the Lutheran tradition, for instance, the book True Christianity, it's an enormous book, but it's not meant to be read like cover to cover. You read like a chapter, which is maybe a page and a half every day. And you ingest it and you take your time. It's all in a form in which you are able to integrate your reading with your life. It's a failure of integration that I'm criticizing. Mm-hmm. And it's sense. a failure that can occur less easily with books than with screens, but can still occur and maybe even quite easily, just not extremely easily as screens do. And what it gives you, especially, and I think it, it does, the genre does matter, speculative fiction of all kinds is going to suck you in, in a way that something that's saying, Hey, I'm talking about Poland in the 19th century. So you need to learn about all these things that you don't know in order to even understand what I'm saying. And, you know, this kind of thing. Less accessible. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's less accessible and it, it holds itself and holds you more closely to, you know, historical givens. Nonetheless, the issue is that if I'm doing that too much, I'm just living in that world. And, Mm -hmm. You know, for my own part, this this choice severely affected my life because there was a point in time you were there when I was choosing to either talk about literature for the rest of my life or to preach. And I decided to become a preacher because I thought it actually mattered. Whereas I can explain to somebody why this or that novel can can actually change the way that you look at the world. But it just obviously doesn't matter in the the same way that the Bible applied to life, which is what preaching is doing, matters. So um, I 
my life is shaped by this idea that books matter a lot, but they don't matter as much as wisdom, which is not quite the same thing mm -hmm. as reading books. N not at all. Uh, street smart usually is the way you would see wisdom versus the book smart yeah. of knowledge. Although I don't want to make a dogma out of that. The, I do want to say, I tried to say it and I smashed it up before and what you said was much better than what I said, but something on the medium itself of the page is and does function the same way that the screen does in which it demands that you submit to a reality inside of a box outside of time and your mind must go there and be disembodied to engage it. Mm -hmm. And in that way, even though you can learn about reality there and come back and apply it, it's not real. It's just not real. It's in your head. Now, I doesn't mean that's bad. I'm not saying it's bad, but if that's all you have. Right. Yeah. 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 That's all you have. And you, I mean, you see this in the sense of sadness that should overwhelm you when you see a grown man deeply, deeply, deeply invested in something like, you know, watching sports or movies or something like that, because that is an investment of energy that God gave him for things in life, like his life, the life that he continues to get to have as long as he continues breathing. And he's investing that energy in something that just, it just, it is nothing. It's nothing. The only ways in which it's real are in hard economic ways. And so, and, you know, you can tell this because it could go away and, you know, you would suffer withdrawal from that habit and then it would be gone. If you're not making money off it, it could disappear tomorrow and it wouldn't matter if the Green Bay Packers or anything else existed at all, ever, anywhere. And so the idea that I would invest time and energy and stuff caring about that and then that that would be normalized, especially in the church, those are our sermon illustrations. That's what men talk about. And it doesn't mean that you have to be self-serious or something, or that I walk around being like, well, in Thomas Mann's novel, <laughs> The Magic Mountain, called Det Zapperberg in German. You know, I mean, it doesn't, you don't you have to you be You mispronounced it, dude. You mispronounced it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to be insufferable. It just means that you don't want to waste what you've been given on something that is nothing. And most of what you are taught via media to care about is nothing you're taking it too seriously i mean in his own time and place charles dickens was after dinner entertainment for people it wasn't something that you would devote your life to and write 15 books about that's just an academic example of the same ways that people have when they spend time and money and energy caring about the packers or well, to live in any any false story to the neglect of your real life is uh well nostalgia i think actually as well uh, it, it is really what this is about for a lot of us still then is trying to cling to something that we lost and we don't know where it went whether that be your childhood hope of sports or your dreams of growing up to be the hero or, yeah. or what have you um right. again not the easiest place to segue and and turn but it is that time in the show when we we do <laughs> we do make the easy shift from uh, nostalgia, sport, idolatry, and yeah. the submission of your mind to boxes from all over the place into telecommunications and yeah. surveillance before the internet. Yeah, that isn't so bad. I mean, it actually, kind of does connect. No, no, you're good, and <laughs> and I think it shifts easily because I, something that you have to think about when you think about being surveilled or the growth of government surveillance, which is sort of a that's a story I want to tell at least up to World War II today, is you have to imagine your own great-great-grandfather standing next to you. What kind of clothing is he wearing? What are the things that he thinks about on a daily basis? How has he shaped his life? And maybe he was a completely normal person, at least one of your two times great-grandfathers. He's not wearing a package jersey. He doesn't know about any Hollywood celebrities. Hollywood doesn't exist. And he has not been watched either electronically or otherwise, his life has not been circumscribed in the way that yours has by all kinds of forces from your kindergarten teacher to Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> and something to understand about American history, especially, is that a lot 
not just of what our institutions are supposed to be on paper, but of how they functioned and how people voted and what they voted for and how they thought life should go was predicated on conditions of life that don't generally exist in America, large parts of America, at least anymore. That is, we had a very big country. The best form of telecommunications we had beginning in the 19th century was the telegraph. And we had a very low population density, not not just in Alaska, everywhere, relative to Europe. So you could go through days and months and even years of your life, encounter relatively few other human beings. And certainly people wouldn't know what you were doing all the time. And so when people make fun of, you know, freedom, or I don't care about your freedom, or I don't care about your liberty, you need to make that concrete. They don't care about the way that in this country, your ancestors lived. They don't care about your ancestors. They don't care about the way of life that informed all of those forms of government and pieces of paper that brought those to life by saying that, you know, freedom is not this abstraction. It is the way that we have traditionally lived. We didn't live under surveillance. (laughs) If you wanted to live under surveillance, you would have stayed in wherever you came from which almost undoubtedly, no matter where your ancestors came from, had a higher population density than when they came here, unless they came from, you know, urban Europe and just stayed in New York City. Otherwise, I'm right about your ancestors. They were practically on a daily basis freer, not only than you are, but also than their parents were before they came here. And that is something to remember because as communication technology increases in power, So we get radio, especially, you know, before the First World War. This is going to begin to be utilized by the government around the time of the First World War. And the thing that you have to understand about that time is how unprecedented it was. We weren't surveilling people. The closest that we came before World War I to any kind of coherent system of surveillance were a combination of telegraphy with what we would probably now call private military contractors or spy agencies. So the most famous of these and the progenitor of some of the work of what are now our state police forces was the Pinkerton Detective Agency, right? So Pinkerton, uh, this was a private agency, but it, it did a lot of spy work getting its start during the Civil War. Pinkerton, after the Civil War, expands enormously and usually works for the highest bidder. So in the West, it's going to work for the mine owner or you know the owner of the lumber rather than the lumbermen or the miners. It's going to work for you know the builder of the rail or the owner of the railroad uh, rather than the laborers. It's going to work for the mine owner in Appalachia rather than the miners. And the purpose of that kind of surveillance which was personal and, as we said last week, secretive. The watcher doesn't and can't reveal himself for who he is, is basically to thwart efforts generally for people to organize, right? They don't want organized opposition because if if you and I stop fighting and we say, hey, we have this interest in common and we'd probably get paid more every day if we just refuse to work until we get paid what we think we should get paid so we can feed our families, the, the Pinkerton man is generally there to thwart that by being an informant or an infiltrator, right? So those, those kinds of surveillance are personal. They're going to utilize telegraphy. The beginnings of radio are going to you know, give hints of what's to come. But prior to the First World War, we're really talking about personalized surveillance, and it's used in you know, areas of economic trouble, unrest, labor trouble, and also in cities. And often those those two things are the same thing, but it's going to be used in order to personally surveil people. It doesn't mean that if you are a farmer, you know, you're being surveilled. But in certain industries, certain places, especially in certain, you know, ethnic groups that are in a lot of those industries, so Scandinavians, Italians, Irish, and a lot of these industries, recent immigrants, they're going to be surveilled 
by someone who is who was once one of them or is pretending to be for the purposes of someone above them uh, who doesn't care about them. So it's not like surveillance was absent from American history, but it really wasn't normal. And it couldn't be because there were technological limitations on its scope. This is immediately calling to mind uh, the last episode and the idea of how in our modern dystopic state, the friends of yours are now the surveillance and that they don't need to go hire somebody to do this, but that we're all doing it to each other already. And that is part of the great, well, terror of the moment, really. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, and so, you know, that could be like, somewhat limited, right? And that idea that you basically know who you're dealing with. And then if you don't know who you're dealing with, it's like somewhat obvious. Can't remember the name of the movie. It's a black and white movie from the 1940s. But the way that you can tell in that movie, who is the German spy who is uh, landed on an isolated beach and has infiltrated America is that he knows more than one verse of the Star Spangled Banner, which of course none of us do, right? (laughs) So they can tell because the guy knows all this stuff that he's obviously not one of them. So there is trust because see this too, that we're not only talking about one's own personal privacy. We're also talking about the freedom to have a group of friends, the freedom to have a group that is trusted with whom you can freely speak with whom you could also therefore organize something. Mm -hmm. And if that can be infiltrated or surveilled, then not only freedom of speech, practically speaking, and organization, politically, you know, lawful assembly cannot occur because the real problem is that you're getting together in a trusted group of people who will not divulge everything that you've said or done to the outside world. So those kinds of those kinds of gatherings are the very thing that surveillance, even in its most technologically primitive form, surveillance is there to ensure that that can't happen. Right. Which is what happens then when you have, say, for example, a congregation wherein no matter what you do, there will be injected into it alt narrative stories that run contrary to that congregation's historic and present goals for existence. And Mm -hmm. these alt-narrative stories, uh, these uh, subtly placed spies who bring words from far away to throw off the good plan with a bad plan, um, they are your own people now, and they are are imbibing it themselves. And the other piece that just just calls to mind for me is a bit in in a lot of our old – resources as LCMSers, most of our old mm-hmm. constitutions and things, will have some idea, you know, Walther's writings will have some idea about how a congregation will not allow within its community unorthodox publications. And, and to think that we would think the television would just not matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It really, uh, yeah, you can take right. it from there. Yeah, 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 that's an unorthodox publication for sure. So, yeah, I, I think I think that surveillance's goals can be reached much more quickly as technology progresses. So, you know, I I referred to the growth of radio. What that's going to do during World War I is enable, along with personalized surveillance, which, which still exists. So there are stories, if you're a Lutheran listening to this, you and your congregation's old enough, There might actually be stories like this somewhere in a congregational history or something of someone from the American Protective League or someone, you know, named Captain Jackson or some other name that might not have been his actual name, but he worked for military intelligence visiting the pastor. Just I just want to see what's going on, you know, and some some of the pastors were in stories that I've read were not as naive as people thought they were going to be. So they didn't let them in or they refused to talk. <laughs> sure. You can walk around the church. I'm just not going to tell you anything. Some were very naive and thought that a, a nation at war with what was obviously kind of their home country or the home country of their, of their culture was going to be tolerant of them because that's what was on the books. Again, I I think that something to accentuate is that if you don't protect these liberties or you don't advocate to maintain the kinds of freedom that your second great grandfather took for granted, they don't exist. 
they they don't exist. I mean, they're there on paper, but they're not they're not real. They're not real anymore. They're not there. So there were pastors, I think, that understood that, and um, there were actually groups in the Lutheran Church that were uh, instrumental in in preserving some of these some of these liberties for Lutherans, among which especially was the. American Lutheran Publicity Bureau, but they they understood what was going on and that the government was very much more interested in surveillance. This extended to something that very interesting story told in a book called The American Black Chamber by the guy that ran what that was, which was a sort of proto-national security agency. So we got um, most telegraph companies to cooperate in giving this unit of military intelligence messages to and from foreign countries, embassies, consulates in the United States, uh, but also involving to some extent American citizens. And most you know, combatants in the First World War were censoring the mail for everybody, generally. Liberty goes away in wartime. And so in this American Black Chamber book, Herbert Yardley, who ran this outfit, describes how much we contravened people's right to, you know, just (laughs) have their, their mail not read, have their communications not read. And you can see how already this was happening. This was spreading from, well, you know, we can, we can read what the Japanese ambassador is saying to, well, we can, we can read what this, you know, prominent American citizen is saying. It would have been just technologically impossible to intercept everyone's communications at that time. This office actually survived an enormous demobilization at the end of the First World War. And it disappeared when Herbert Hoover took office and his secretary of state, who was, that department was half funding this office by that point in the 1920s, just closed it overnight immediately with a comment. Henry Stimson said, gentlemen, do not read other gentlemen's mail. (laughs) Oh, wow. There's just sort of a code of behavior and it would be wrong to transgress it. There, There are not circumstances under which we need to do that. And we're not at war with the whole world. So we don't need to read what they're doing. Except for the, the FBI was born shortly thereafter. So Yeah, yeah. Well, because what's going on simultaneously is that World War I really is the point at which the American government becomes irrevocably too large. And I know that people want to put that after World War II, but it was all ready to go, okay, as an experiment in World War I. And what happens is that an office that, had, that was very nebulous very unsure if it should even exist. Is this like a secret police like Russians or Germans have? Crystallizes under the figure of J. Edgar Hoover during the time right after World War I when, you know, very late 1918, most of 1919, when we begin to realize that we have people in our country largely immigrants, therefore deportable because they're not citizens, who are trying to do the same kinds of things in the United States that socialists and communists were doing in Germany, as we discussed in the episodes on Germany during the 1920s. That is, they wanted to overthrow our form of government. And this is called the Red Scare by largely leftist historians But more neutrally and accurately, it's called the Palmer Raids after uh, Quaker Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer, who uh, wanted all of these people deported because he knew if they were deported, they couldn't any longer pose a political threat to the United States of America. Hoover is instrumental in finding those people who are being surveilled. (laughs) So you can see here, too, that surveillance is self-reinforcing. And the more kind of unusual characters that I let in, oh, here's yet another Eastern European anarchist. I wonder if he would be a productive member of American society. The more folks that you let in of more different kinds, we don't know what's going on. We don't know what their motivations are. They're coming from completely different political systems where being an anarchist in Spain or a communist in Italy is semi-normal politically. Surveillance becomes more and more necessary. The more different kinds of people we have 
and the more constant social and political change that we have just demographically, because the government doesn't know who they're dealing with. But then those techniques of surveillance available for some specific crisis, a war, threats, assassinations by anarchist immigrants, which we had had earlier with uh, different presidents, those techniques of surveillance gradually get extended to lots of other people too. So the FBI comes into existence and gets to endure in a way that the American Black Chamber does not because it proves itself more obviously useful because it's engaged in domestic surveillance. And we have so many people running around, even after the Palmer raids, engaged in who knows what. We want to know what they're up to. We want to know what they're doing. And I think that it's important to think about these things as techniques and bureaucracies. It really doesn't matter that at some given point in history, the FBI or in a largely foreign, but not entirely foreign way, the CIA later on, or the National Security Agency, we're going after communists and you don't like communists, so it's okay. The issue is eventually those same institutions and techniques will be targeted at someone else and probably you eventually. And that's really what we're interested in. I'm not interested in the fact that somebody in the FBI is now or was once upon a time, you know, a good, solid, conservative American that really doesn't matter because the techniques and the institutions will outlast him. Yeah. It comes back to the demons every time. Uh, everything built by us seems to get eaten by them and turned against us in one way right. or another. Yep. Um, yep. Which is why building for the temporal might be a topic to consider not doing, right? That's a different thing. Did, do we um, talk about urbanization as the mother of surveillance? I thought that was really clever given that like surveillance begins when you're too close to your neighbor basically. Yeah. That's how it starts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it certainly makes it possible, right? So there is the possibility of disappearing in a city. At this point, you'd probably have to be homeless in order to do that. Hmm. There is the possibility of disappearing in a city and a kind of freedom that I think people understand if they've ever gone into a new city alone and had free time of any kind, even just a couple hours. It, it can be very, very free. The issue is the circumscription of space and the relative ease of access make surveillance eminently possible. And it's why as technology develops and especially video technology, cities will come to be places that are constantly surveilled, even just by cameras. Yeah. So I can, I can just, I, I flip and, you know, most American cities really are not on a par with most British cities in this regard, but that, this is a place under constant surveillance. So if you think about it, what urbanization is going to permit will be as, as populations are, are begin to be concentrated. And the real flip is the 1920 census when America flips from being majority rural to majority urban is that as technology develops, I will now be able to surveil where most people live most of the time. And maybe depending on where they are, where they do business and where they sleep all of the time. So the, the possibilities for surveillance are going to grow not only with technology, but also with the concentration of population, which is occurring throughout the kind of the latter half of the 19th century in America. And that, that flip from majority, urban, majority rural to majority urban is going to happen in 1920 and then only intensify this is a bit of a tangent, but it uh, we, it may be blown in the last episode as a as a tidbit. But you know, you just said you know surveilling some people maybe all of the time. I think mm -hmm. I think it's pretty fair to say that uh, unless you're operating cash, your yeah. purchases are being surveilled all the time, and that makes all of us in one very large arena of our lives surveilled all the time. The, the, yeah. Our purchases are not yeah, private; they're being swiped. Yeah. Right. And, and just to see, again, you know, how, how tied down we are. But coming back down to um, where we were, evident yeah. FBI, a paradigm, a, a system more or yeah. a technique uh, right. more than an org per se. Right. Um, right. And then World War Two is right around the corner. Right. Right. And I just want to reiterate that with the FBI, because, you know, Herbert, um, Herbert Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover has his own basically file card index. And that is technologically primitive, his files on people. But 
that is just going to shift to digital and then be transferred in something that we'll talk about maybe next week transferred to something that's just much more technologically savvy, which is the National Security Agency. So by the time Edward Snowden is telling you what the National Security Agency is doing, you have not realized that, you know, roughly 100 years before that, we were already doing that to American citizens, we were just doing it in a technologically primitive way. So the nature of the FBI here is simply that it sets a precedent for work. Okay, and I'm not I'm, I'm really not criticizing the FBI on the score of certain interstate crimes like bank robbery. Okay? <laughs> but we're saying that it has always had this political aspect to it, you know, nakedly political aspect to it. And that that, you know, had a, a real historical occasion. But once that historical occasion went away, now I can use that on some of the people that we talked about way back. Gordon Call. Uh, mm-hmm. The folks at Ruby Ridge, the, the branch uh, Davidians at Waco, they they have to be surveilled for those situations to end the way that they did. And think, so, oh, go ahead, go ahead, finish your the thought. real the real precedent here, which is really just going to amp up after World War II, when the government has grown exponentially and stays enormous, stays enormous after the Second World War is simply that we will surveil Americans if we find it politically expedient and technologically possible. Yeah, so they come out with the strength of Captain America and the mentality of Hydra. The question I had, though, I don't want to go past the name yeah. Edward Snowden. I yeah. I have a history of, what, eight hours of listening to him be interviewed by um, uh, Joe Rogan, I think. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I know a lot of what he said, and, his, and yeah. it was part of peeling back the onion layer of uh, the false flag that, that we live under. Um, but I think m- maybe a lot of our listeners don't have that. So just want to throw you know, a few moments of who, who yeah. that guy was and why he was important. Edward, Edward Snowden is a contractor at the National Security Agency, which, yeah, I'll, ta- I'll, I'll talk about next week because I think that the NSA is a lot more important than anyone maybe realized until Snowden. And it is an enormous percentage of our intelligence budget. And we weren't even allowed to know that it existed until the 1970s. Even once we knew that it existed, and the canonical books on this are by a guy named James Bamford, B-A-M-F-O-R-D, we didn't exactly know what they were doing. And that is what it turned out that they were doing. And, okay, Snowden with a grain of salt, just like everyone else, fine, great, okay, caveat, you know, given. What they were doing is they were doing to American citizens, potentially to in certain cases of telecommunication, the data, the metadata of every communication, and in some cases, the data of every communication, were being tracked, okay? Um, And you can go to Snowden's writings and interviews for the the details of this, or Bamford. But guess what? (laughs) They They were doing that to people during the First World War. They just weren't do it, doing it in the technologically comprehensive way that was available right. to us once we had the internet. Or they couldn't extend it to every home and house. And cell phones. Yeah, they couldn't extend it to everyone, right? That's really the difference, right? So if I say, well, surveillance has increased and blah, 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 blah. I'm also saying that these things have not only been here for a long time, but they therefore also are not quite as, like, you don't need to understand technologically what is happening in its entirety, in order to grasp what is wrong. You could have grasped back around the time of the First World War, or even during the Civil War, when this was generally contracted out, as I suspect a lot of it is contracted out. I think a lot of things are not handled, because why would, if we operate this way in foreign countries where we contract out so much, even very dirty things we contract out, why would we do that all that differently? Why would the same agencies do it differently inside the United States. I know that it's against the law. I know. Yeah, well, yeah right. Why like, would like they, they do it? Like they care about that. Yeah, right. So, right. Like contracting out, I want to I want to dovetail out of this for a moment and we can come right back sure. to where we were, but what that means, I think you're right, and I think what that means is helpful in supporting your claim that what we're watching is not malice so much as um, incompetence that once these contracts of various levels of do this government 
are being pushed out into the private sphere with layers of kind of guaranteed government funding, non-government government bureaucracies in the private sector, eventually what you have is watchers who are not watching anything. And you have a lot of people saying that the one below them or above them is probably the one that's taking care of the thing. And that's where the fragility in the system then arises as these jobs sort of exist, but, but no one's really doing them. Um, Right. Yeah. 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 I, I, I I think there, I think there's incompetence. I also think that part of it is a deeper, is it, is a pursuit of deeper secrecy, right? So if I have a certain level of secrecy, I may end up still being in some level of government or some organization which is accountable. So this this really terrified a variety of security and intelligence agencies when especially and mostly the CIA was investigated after Watergate by the Church Committee, which is named after the senator that was in charge of it. So if I want to elude detection, what I will pursue is deeper secrecy. So if you're pursuing deeper indulgence and consumer experiences, your government, once called public servants and officers of the peace and other such anachronistic terms, your government is pursuing deeper secrecy. So for instance, the National Security Agency exists before the late 1970s, but no one knows officially that it does. I mean, now there's like a museum that they have near Fort Meade, but I mean, it's not like they're taking you on a tour of everything else that's going on. So the issue here is just that- It begs the question, you know, yeah. long live a government that you don't, is doing stuff you don't know it's doing. And some of it you learned about in the 1970s and you're assuming that was it, like that, that was all they're doing that we don't know about, as opposed right. to what we know now is even less of what they're yeah. doing than before. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the way that I think about things like Bamford's writings or Snowden, another guy, especially in the NSA, you know, getting ready for the next, for next week, you might look at some videos by William Binney, B-I-N-N-E-Y, who was a longtime NSA employee. He was an actual employee, not a contractor like Snowden and not a journalist like Bamford. But the thing to understand about this is this, these amounts of disclosure some of them may be inadvertent. Some of them may be intentional. Nonetheless, it's not like you know nothing about them. All I'm saying is that the, the nature of what's going on here in the collapse of American privacy and the growth of surveillance is that there is a mysterious pursuit of deeper secrecy. And that exists on the level of you know, contracting things out that exists on the level of even if you could hold a government figure accountable, the surveillance might not stop because it may not actually be being run through an explicitly governmental figure that is someone actually finally accountable to you at all. And that's my point that no, no one knows. And at a certain level, when no one knows, no one knows. And and, and the thing is really doing its own thing. And then this brings back that conversation about demons again, because I'm just not so sure they don't never know. I'm pretty sure they always know. Okay. Okay. So what, yeah. So what I'm saying is what I think is going on here, let's say theologically or metaphysically is that opening ourselves up to growth of government has economic consequences and legal consequences and all the rest of it. But I don't don't really think it explains the rather miserable, incoherent nature of modern American life. I think it's easier to understand why life is the way it is for so many of us, or has been at least at some point for all of us. If you understand that we are a nation in pursuit of, on the one hand, self-indulgent consumer experiences on the other hand deeper and deeper and deeper levels of secrecy for our financial doings for our sexual appetites for our real political power that is i don't know who these people are or what they're doing you know i can i can just use phrases like you know epstein's flight logs (laughs) i don't know why all those people are on there are on there and i don't know what they're doing, but I know that I recognize tons of names. So what's happening is not just that government is being abused or something. That's definitely true. It is that we have in our regime people whose, one of whose greatest obvious points of devotion is to secrecy, which we don't get. We don't get secrecy. 
So this is this guy, you know, he lives in a castle. I never get to go into the castle. I couldn't militarily assault the castle and win. But he knows everything I do. He knows, he knows what's going, you know, when I got married, he knows how many kids I have. He knows, he knows what fields I planted and which ones I left fallow. And he, the Lord of the manor, I don't know anything about him. I'm not even sure I've ever seen him. So what you can see in the death of our privacy and the growth of their surveillance is not just the abuse of a certain form of government, but the formation of a new form of government, which is defined by secrecy and defined by surveillance and relies on those things for its continuing reality. Where to from that? Where we're going to go next is into a story that's going to start in the Cold War, but it's going to carry through what used to be called the Global War on Terror into our own day. And that is the specifically digital forms of surveillance that become technologically possible because of the practicality of computers first made possible for uh, the American government in order to in order to track the flight of ballistic objects. Honestly, uh, that's that's why they start they invent at least at first the vacuum tube computer. That's going to be utilized for the purposes of surveillance as we go forward. I, I want to stop before we do that next week and probably the week to follow just to say this about the nature of surveillance. And I think that this is something that this is why people want to uh, talk about the things that, that we talk about on here. That is because I, you know, I, I, I have started listening to some specifically political podcasts just to know certain things that are going on that I, I couldn't otherwise know, especially about elections and, 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 and how those are manipulated. The reason that I do that is not because I'm actually interested in all the details of what happens specifically in, you know, Maricopa County, Arizona. I do that because I find in these specific instances, right, the the formation of the FBI, um, the growth of the National Security Agency, like we'll talk about, I find in them specific instances of what is happening. And if, but if I, if I take those specific instances and I think about them in bigger terms, theological terms, metaphysical terms, philosophical terms, then I, I get a much better sense of what is actually going on and why it has the effect on people that it does, which is to say the effect it has on us of being surveilled constantly is similar to being an unpopular person in a small town. And the reason I'm unpopular is not because nobody ever likes, you know, my posts or nobody ever, you know, sends me a message or sends me an email or something, whatever form of communication I'm looking for. I'm kind of miserable because It is a kind of an appetite that is never satisfied, but it's been induced in me and I can't get out of having it. It is really significant to me that so many Americans use the word addiction for their problems now. I mean, I don't know if you've thought about that, but rather than saying like, I have a problem, I need to deal with it, Hmm. right? Like, okay, here's my math problem. I need to figure out how to solve this particular I got a bad habit. I need some discipline. Yeah, right. Yeah. I talk about the things that I do that I know are bad for me, right? I talk about them as addictions, which means, and I, this to me is very spiritually telling to talk about, you know, the demons we talked about, especially last week, which means it's not really, it's not even potentially under my control. Like it, it runs me. Mm -hmm. And I think that the reason we do that is because our daily experience, unlike our, our two times great grandfather's, is largely not an experience of self-governance, which is an experience of personal failure, but also of personal success that I figured out how to chop this particular tree down without destroying my house or whatever it is that I had to learn how to do with accompanying risk, but also reward. Our experience is largely an experience of being surveilled and therefore of being controlled. So it's like when we, even when we experience certain things that we ourselves, we know we did it. Like I did that. Nobody else did that. 
we still naturally talk about it. And I don't think this is, I don't think people are lying exactly. I just think it's telling that they talk about it this way. We talk about it as if it's something that we have no control over. And this is not just, you know, famously lazy millennials that don't want to, you know, get a real job or something. You're right. Okay. There are generational differences, whatever. This is everybody. <laughs> you said that. So like one of them too, it's great. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is, this is everybody. I mean, and, and they, and I, and I, and I believe that there is something right about it. I mean, I, I don't think people are lying to themselves. I think they actually do feel like they're under someone else's control. And I think that they are being truthful in the nature of the things that they are doing wrong. So it's not one off. I did this thing wrong, or I said this wrong thing. It's, well, I always do this, or I always say this, or this always happens with me. And that sense of never being able to break out of something essentially cyclical is in the nature of life under someone else's surveillance, because you're always directed toward pleasing them or not being caught by them or whatever. And I, so I think it's very telling that people talk about being addicted to sugar or addicted to pornography or addicted to whatever they're addicted to, addicted to being a jerk, because they really do feel like there is no capacity for self-regulation. Yeah, yeah. And that has to do with the destruction of willpower. Yeah, I think that that is that has been accelerated enormously by digital communication. So this is where, to me, this, the the technology story and the surveillance story really come together, and that's why I saved the NSA for you know next time because I find it much more relevant to our daily lives than say the FBI, even if the FBI is listening to this, I would like to say hello and welcome. You guys are exciting and, 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 and forget yeah. about it. That's all <laughs> I got on that one. But, um, but I find the, the NSA to be much more paradigmatic for contemporary American life because you're dealing with something where someone is, someone is potentially watching all of us in that, in that case. And I don't know it, but it does affect my life. And this is a this is a way, this is simply a way of life. I want to stress that it's not just unconstitutional. It's also, in addition, a way of life completely foreign to our historical experience. Yeah, right, right, right. Email itself is a slick is a cyclical slavery to performance. Oh, and yeah, it, it for just sure. demands. Yeah. Yeah. Performance. Now I want to shift for a sec. We got about sure. ten minutes, five, five, ten minutes here. I'm gonna yeah. come back to where you just were, but you you brought to mind that that word performance, and I think the email is where you can pick it back up again. So I suffer from something uh, that has been diagnosed or is diagnosable as complex post traumatic stress disorder. It's it's complex. One of the things that is is part of my life experience is I effectively feel the need to perform for every human relationship I have, including my wife and kids, mm. uh, mm -hmm. that I am ever under the pressure to uh, kind of earn their gladness with me. And mm -hmm. as I've learned about this, I, I, I find that both biblical prayer and and discipline have been really good at, at, at peeling that onion apart and finding some some glimmering light in the midst of it. So if you're out there and you have this condition, you know, I think the Holy Spirit is bigger than Peter Walker's diagnosis. Um, but in, by far what I claim to have like left this behind or something. But to speak to then the experience of performance rewards in human relationships, to see yeah. then, you know, here I am, a specially you know, neglected baby effectively that has this experience that we are doing the similar kind of stilted nullification of inner life value to yeah. an entirety of the population as a means of attaining hedonistic rewards for performance, which indeed is addiction. So why does the rat go back to the cocaine or why does the rat go back to the sugar instead of the cocaine? Yeah. And yeah. it's because of yeah. performance reward. And so this is terrifying, right? That is absolute lack of, lack of self-control. And if you don't believe in demons, how is that any different from a belief in demons oppressing you? I, I just don't see what the difference is yeah. for the atheist. Even, yeah. Right? So, yeah, it, I, I think you're hinting at something that relates not just to the NSA, but to where we'll kind of wrap up this little series before we start talking about rebuilding. And that is in the nature of social credit, because a, a social credit system such as the Chinese have already, you know, begun to implement 
a social credit system is a perfection of surveillance. And they don't need closed circuit television necessarily to get it done because they can utilize something that you will have experienced if, you know, you were, you know, badgered by some overbearing authority, just always on top of you or whatever. And that is a sense that life really is, is not your own to live. You live as a kind of, as really as a slave to this other person's perceived or expressed expectations or needs or opinions. And I'm not just talking about, you know, obviously criminal situations. I'm talking about the ways that people are, are forced to live in, in a way that really their existence is reducible to their utility to somebody else. That's slavery. And we don't really need COVID to get there. It's a really good way to get there, but we didn't need it because we were already headed there by way of increased surveillance because the techniques that are pioneered by this or that agency can be utilized and it doesn't have to be by an explicitly government agency. You know, I mean, maybe your parents will do this to you. Maybe the pastor will do this to you where your life is circumscribed by someone else's definition of your utility. This is, I mean, this is why I find Aldous Huxley. I mean, people heard my criticism of George Orwell. This is why I find Aldous Huxley's Brave New World so much more prescient than any other future dystopia for where we went, because there is a combination of provision of hedonistic comfort alongside an utterly stifling system of social credit and and in that in that book specifically genetic selection and that that enables mass slavery and i think that that is what the role of secrecy is doing that we are currently in process of construction of a new serfdom yeah uh, 1984 the the piece that I meant to say this when we talked about it and I didn't. Yeah. The the piece that I found um, most prophetic, unless I'm confusing it with Fahrenheit 4 and 11, which isn't that great a read, but is is the uh, the constant presence of the screen in the individual's life as a yeah. form yeah. of friendship. Yeah, yeah. Right? no, that's like so that, that he's yeah. yeah, that he saw that your friends would be the people you watched on TV. Um, I think that is prescient uh, on an extreme level and the real value of the book as opposed to say it's actual governmental expectations um, and and there. So I don't want to, I don't want to rain on whatever you were saying though, which is so much, so much more kind of wide sweeping that when someone else is defining your value in a world that tells you the only value is the pursuit of pleasure and you only get it if you do what we say is right. um, Yeah. That's slavery. It's right. just like it's just slavery. It's just what it is. Yeah, and it's very it's very explicitly slavery if you look at it in um, theological terms, because of the pursuit of pleasure, you know, this is debated especially by the church fathers, but they'll generally say, you know, what they call the passions: mm-hmm. hunger, thirst, pleasure, pain. These don't exist before the fall. Before the fall, man is equable and stable and calm. Not that he's not eating anything, but that he's not. He's not subject to these things the way we are now. For for you to be subject to pleasure is in some ways the absolutely most painful form of devotion to your own passions because you're not even aware of a lack. So death (laughs) and misfortune come as an utter shock. Yeah, right, right. Because you have no prior familiarity with them. Oh man, I've told this story so many times. This was out in Philly, <laughs> man. Uh, I went, I, there was a lady who, it was Jersey still even maybe, first call. There was a lady who never came to church, but came like twice and then called me and um, her mother, who was not a member, um, yeah. who was in her 80s, was going to be dying soon and she wanted me to go visit her. So I go. Mm-hmm. She's in the nursing home. There she is. She's, she's in her 80s, lifelong smoker, not dying of lung cancer, just going to die, just old. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of tired. Mm-hmm. And she looks me in the eye. And I, I, Hi, I'm the pastor of your daughter. You know, she asked me to come visit you. She kind of, you know, g- 
ages me up a little bit. Like, who is this guy? Yeah. But then yeah, sure. she, she, she gets honest. She goes, how did this happen? I was flabbergasted. I'm like, lady, you lived a good long life. What do you mean how to happen? You smoked the whole way. You watched a lot of TV. It's, it's, I didn't say that. Right. But that's what's going on in my head. The stupefaction of, of this woman to not yeah. know that at some point it was going to just stop. Right. I mean, it blew my mind as a young man. Right. still does really. Right. Yeah. And, and that is, that is a voice of someone who has been enslaved speaking because a free man would have had time and opportunity in order to do some kind of reflection on life rather than constantly having something pumped into him, food, entertainment, whatever else, he would not have lived his life like a sort of farm animal fattened up for slaughter. And I say that, you know, I, I think that's true. It's, it's not a reflection on that specific woman. Probably there are many like her. But you're not, you're not meant to live your life without reflection or a sense that this will one day end. So what are you going to do or believe in view of that? And this is something that we can, you know, this gets utilized politically, the dumbing down of America. That's why we need to fund our public schools more. But I really do believe that we've gotten dumber, maybe in an intellectual sense, certainly in a spiritual sense. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, how well all it's, of it's my the human it's the human constitution, yeah. right? So it's something about our willpower, it's something about our emotional capacity to endure emotions at all, right? Disassociation from the things we don't want to believe are are, are real. And so it is it's like a whole soul problem, a whole spirit problem. But I, I think I think that what is happening as you are surveilled and you accommodate yourself to surveillance is that and all the trade-offs that that entails is that the soul then becomes dormant. Hmm. It's, it's sleeping within you. Or if, if it were active, it would kind of surprise and upset you. Right. So you're going to replace that soul with, you know, to the extent that that's even possible with the judgments that are provided to you, other people's judgments, other people's opinions, other people's thoughts. And, you know, consensus is not bad, but if it's attained in the wrong way, it can be very bad. And usually consensus in our groups is attained by not talking about things and not talking through them. It would be to return to where we, we finished last week. It would be shocking to our forefathers in our church to come to one of our meetings of really any kind and find out that we don't really spend any time talking or talking through what the Bible says about anything. We'll get somebody talking maybe about the Bible, but we don't really talk about it. And things are on such a scale that a lot of what happens when we come together are largely just rather opaque decision-making processes and essentially, you know, advertisements by various agencies within the church for various <laughs> yeah, purposes. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and that, that is symptomatic of a general disinterest in what is happening with the soul. Whereas if I'm going to spend two hours actually talking through, okay, what does happen when you die, then that's going to tell you this is important. And the other things that you could have been doing with your two hours, like going out to Applebee's are not, or certainly not as much. So I think that when we're talking about, okay, well, what do I do with demons? One thing to realize is that because our demons usually don't have their own temples erected on every street corner in our society, I think they probably want your time more than your space. So what's going on with time collectively or individually? And that's a good place to start in resistance to them. You're talking about the dormant soul. Yeah. And how this is being done to you with pleasure. And so you thinking I liked that movie isn't really a good argument right now because that's actually kind of the problem. And so that we cumulatively have a group soul that has been nullified by the pursuit of pleasure 
as Christians, whatever form you think that takes right now, uh, the only word biblically that I can come up with to describe that is drunkenness. Yeah. 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 Which also means that you're, you're feeling, you're feeling too much of something and not enough of almost everything else. Oh man, that's, that's about right. So there you go. You're listening to a brief history of power with two white guys. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org.